Hey everyone, this is Liam McCollum again, and today I'll have Mark Schneider on to talk about Gen 4 nuclear reactors. He is the president of Gen 4 Nuclear Inc., and he considers himself a nuclear futurist. He has presented his green nuclear deal to both Republicans and Democrats because he thinks that it's more likely to fight climate change, and he believes that both Republicans and Democrats think this too. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking about that, and basically, uh, before we get started, I just wanted to say that with the future of this podcast, I really, I really just want to bring on different perspectives that a lot of people don't hear about. Um, my first podcast was about just an anti-war position with Scott Horton. He went through all the history of the Iraq war and basically where we're at with Iran right now. And then my second podcast was with Mike Meharry, a friend of mine, and we talked about constitutionalism, states' rights, libertarianism, God, and gold. So really, I'm all over the place with this, but uh, yeah, if you want to just let me know if there's any other topics you'd like me to cover, I kind of want to start talking about Montana issues, more local stuff. So yeah, just let me know what you think of this, and um, if you make it all the way to the end, thank you, and come back soon. Hey, Liam. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Um, today, I just kind of wanted, uh, first, I wanted to go over your background a little bit. Okay. Uh, maybe just, could you tell us who you are, where you come from, what you do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. I, I grew up in Oregon. I graduated high school. I went and joined the Navy. I did 20 years operating nuclear reactors. I did both submarines and aircraft carrier, carriers. Then I uh, um, uh uh, did some regulatory oversight as well. The Navy does its own self-regulation, uh, and so I got to do some of that. And then uh, I retired from the Navy, and then I started working in a commercial power plant. And then using all that experience, I've been able to uh, coordinate and work with, uh, you know, figuring out how these new generation reactors work. Um, I'm a man of very few uh, interests, uh, so I say this pretty much all the time. Uh, my wife is a nuclear engineer, engineer as well, uh, so we have the nerdiest pillow talk. <laughs> and um, you know, she actually has uh, she has a master's uh, degree in uh, basically generation four reactors. So most of my information actually comes from her. She's taught me, and I'm more the face of it. She likes to be more behind the scenes. So um, yeah, so she she pushes a lot of this stuff as well. Like lets me be the face of it, but really she's the uh, the brains behind the operation and the looks. Well, that that's that's good to hear. Um, so. You you specifically talk about um, generation four reactors, then that that's what you said. Yeah, that's what uh, I, I talk about all new all fission nuclear for the most part. Okay. But generation four is kind of the, the 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 stuff I'm pushing for the most. Okay, cool. Um, so I kind of wanted to just preface the rest of the interview with some information I found about because uh, I I live in Montana, so just okay. um, the regulations within Montana itself. So. Um, as of now, I know that the state has jurisdiction over x-ray equipment, naturally occurring radioactive materials, and certain materials not produced in a reactor. And also, um, nuclear reactors are dependent on voter approval. So basically, um, in order for things to get financed or a nuclear reactor to be built, it has to be voted upon. Um, okay. So it, it is highly dependent on the state, and I do know that Montana also is very dependent on fossil fuels. We, you know, we love coal. But could you kind of just talk, give, make the case for nuclear energy and um, why it why it's safe? Um, I I tend to agree with you on this topic, but I know that a lot of Montanans might not. Yeah. So uh, I mean, nuclear energy is you actually do the breakdown by um, they do this. There's a couple of great graphics. I'll send them to you. They do the breakdown by um, you know per ter death per terawatt hour, hour, and nuclear is either at the the lowest or at the second lowest, depending on which group of statistics you're looking at. Um, it's you know you have to look at it from a, a scale, right? Nuclear power plants are extremely large. So there's very few of them. So when you have an accident, it's a big deal, right? Chernobyl, Fukushima, through my island. But when you actually look at it, um, Fukushima destroyed three nuclear reactors and killed zero people, right? So that's what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, yes, we've had some major accidents with them, but, you know, outside of Chernobyl, 
um, it's basically, you know, we've had no deaths associated with commercial nuclear reactors um, from a nuclear accident. Now there are some, you know, the, the, the standard falls and stuff like that, but even then the industry over-regulates itself with all that stuff. Uh, I'll do a comparison, you know, in the U.S., you know, you look at it, we've had one major accident that was Three Mile Island uh, from a commercial reactor. And then, uh, so one major accident. And then if you look at like the natural gas industry in April of 2019, down in North Carolina, that operator screw up, caused an explosion, killed the operator who did it, killed himself and two other people, and we don't bat an eye, yeah. right? So that's kind of that, that big, you know, uh, discussion. One of the other things when you talk about safety is let's talk about pollution control. So the fossil industry basically takes their waste Right, their waste just gets emitted into the atmosphere, so it gets spread all over the state. All of the state of Montana is being covered by basically coal ash, by you know CO2 from natural gas, uh, talk beer, the any of the pollution associated with with oil. Right, mm-hmm. so that's just being spread all over the state. With nuclear power, they don't produce CO2. They don't produce any emissions. Um, well, I'll rephrase that. There, there are some minor amounts but it's extremely, extremely small when you look at the overall power. And then what happens is that the waste that's left over is stored in containers on the site and it doesn't cause any harm. It's a solid inside of a container. Right. So, I mean, and that's just using the old nuclear and that's, you know, old nuclear is, which is what all the stat is based off, is the safest form of energy. And then when you get into the advanced generation three reactors, like the new scale, uh, Power module or the BWXRT, um, or the BW, yeah, yeah, the BWXRT. Uh, I believe that's yeah. But I might get the names wrong here. Um, you know, this, those are advanced generation three reactors where the new scale power module basically can't melt down, and then the uh, the the Itachi BWRX three hundred, sorry, BWX three hundred. That's what it is. Um, it actually, you have seven days. Uh, basically what's called passive cooling mm-hmm. before you have to actively stop it from melting down, right? In a week, we could be around the country, you know, a thousand times bringing in equipment to make it not melt down, yeah. right? Whereas if you look at a, a, an old reactor, which still, again, the safest, you know, we have hours to basically start getting our cooling systems in place. Now we have a week, right? Mm-hmm. So think about, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, and then when you're getting into generation four reactors, wanted to be labeled a generation four reactor, it has to be safe for meltdown. So meaning that if it were to undergo a Fukushima level loss of uh, cooling systems, it would not be able to meltdown. And then the other thing is, is that uh, some of them, not all of them, but some of them can actually consume nuclear waste as their fuel. So if you look at a site, say, you know, down in Arizona, Palo Verde, they've got, you know, three reactors, largest power station in the United States. And, you know, they've got 40 years of fuel out there of this inefficient design, well, I could use that as fuel in a new reactor, and then what's left over is a waste instead of lasting 100,000 years, lasts say 300 years. Right. And and then even then we can break that down into smaller components, and then you know instead of having you know a ton of waste, I really only have about you know uh, or 100 tons of waste, I'm only about one or two that I actually have to manage for that long time period. Right. Um, and then. I think a lot of people do focus on uh, Chernobyl specifically. You know, the series came out just a little bit ago and stuff like that. Uh, and when, when I had heard you speak um, this summer, uh, you, you, you contrasted like the technology um, in Generation 4 with the technology that they had back then. And, and you kind of used the examples of like uh, the submarines and how the computer systems are able to detect. Could you kind of go into that technology? Yeah, so um, so when you talk about Chernobyl, so Chernobyl is a flawed design with a lack in uh, a lack of uh, safety equipment compounded, right? So if I were to take a, a, you know, so there's, first off, United States reactors cannot undergo a Chernobyl-level event. It's physically impossible. Right? The physics don't work to make that happen um, uh, as far as our commercial reactors. Is, is that because of the, the uh, technology or... Like what? Um, it's just it's it's the, it's core construction and geometry. Um, it's just the way that they're designed. Uh, they have uh, what it, what it is is that uh, the way our reactors design is that is that if temperature rises in them, it provides a negative power, which is going to drive the power of the reactor down. Mm-hmm. So it basically starts to shut itself down. Okay. So it's, it's called a negative feedback loop. Well, in Chernobyl, they had a positive feedback feedback loop, meaning that 
when temperature rose, it caused power to rise. When power rises, it causes temperature to rise, which then causes, right? You see, yeah. you see that it attempts to approach infinity. Um, and then you actually have a, uh, an overpower casualty, which flashed all the water to steam. Right. So if we were to magically, say, transform a reactor in the United States to a Chernobyl-style reactor and did that exact same test and it exploded, we have a containment structure that would contain that. Mm. So the, the, all that material and all that caused that huge exclusion area um, out in uh, Ukraine wouldn't have occurred because it had been contained inside the containment area. You see this big, thick concrete um, you know, they're, they're like a dome on top of the cylinder on the bottom, or mm-hmm. so they're just cylinders. So they're designed to take that. They're concrete reinforced uh, um, structures with the steel inner lining. And I mean, the concrete, the, the rebar is like this big around. They're six inches in diameter, the rebars. Yeah. So it's not, you know, this isn't the rebar you buy at Home Depot. <laughs> um, and this, by the way, and, and we're right now we're comparing 1960s technology here. We're not even into the future stuff. Right, so um, so first off, AR reactors can't go undergo that because they're not Chernobyl designs. And then B, um, you know, the fact is that we have safety equipment in place. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about Generation Four reactors, we actually put three early model reactors that would be similar to a Generation Four today through Chernobyl level events. And you probably have never heard of them. They're all test reactors, mind you. But overpower casualties is what is, is what happened in Chernobyl. They put had too much power come out of the reactor. And all these the three reactors I, I can speak to were all, were all metal-cooled reactors. So there was uh, experimental breeder reactor one out in Idaho, there was the reactor out in San Susana, and then there was Fermi Unit 1. And what happened is, is that they overpowered it, but because instead of using water, they used uh, a molten you know, uh, liquid sodium, or you know, so it's a metal, so it can handle that heat, right? So it caused it got hot enough and it melted the reactors down, but they were able to extract those reactors and they put new reactors in and ran them again. Mm. So and this is early on, so we hadn't developed um, you know, the ability to control the reaction real well. So now we have computer systems, and you know even before that, you know going back to the 1960s technology, we had uh, automatic protective systems that basically you have multiple channels to ensure that you know if one fails, you've got backups. You have, you have backups. Um, and then, you know, just to make you make sure you have lots, you have lots and lots of backups. I mean, I'm talking four channels for everything so that you can even have two fail and you'll still provide the protection, even though you're only allowed to have one on the service. Mm-hmm. Because you assume that one is failed and you don't know. Yeah. Right? And so that's going back into the old. Now we get into the new. So we take this, what we've learned in the past, and we apply it with these new reactors. We have computer modeling, which didn't exist when they built Chernobyl or the reactors in the United States. And when we talk about computer modeling, the United States Navy has, and, and, and I like pointing back here because that's one of those submarines, a Virginia-class submarine that yeah. were on like 20, the 24th or 25th being built. And now, granted, that's more of a, that's like an advanced generation three reactor. Uh, they put it, run it through a computer model, and that model is so accurate that when they do what's called the initial criticality, they withdraw the control rods to bring the reactor online for the mm-hmm. first time. Um, they are exact. They've been within 0.1 inches of the the expected rod height every single time, and the error is probably due to the fact that a human being has to declare that the reactor has gone critical. Mm-hmm. So a, a guy like me, who's an operator, has to go. I have the following indications. I declare the reactor critical. We had a computer system set, and there is a computer system set up, for, but by regulation, we're not allowed to rely on the computer. We have to rely on the human being to make that call. Mm. If you want to look at the computer, I bet you it's accurate within 0.01 inches, not 0.1, right? It's probably a factor of 10 difference. So so current yeah. regulation right now restricts. It doesn't allow computer systems. It's for some aspects, okay. yes. Okay, So, cool. I mean, and to give you an idea, when, when I first started in, in the industry, it was basically everything was analog, meaning you have to get like old FM radio style. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, drastic changes towards, you know, the the, we, and the Navy was type one microprocessor, which is, you know, think of like the 1980s Atari level technology. Mm-hmm. And then now we're on the flat screens, you know, it looks like, you know, advanced computer systems and the type two uh, instrumentation, instrumentation controls that INC stands for. Um, and now we're seeing that being uh, developed into the commercial industry. I mean, if you go out to a reactor right now, it's literally a bunch of old do- knobs and dials. I mean, it, it looks really archaic, yeah. but it's effective. We know we know it works really well. 
but with these computer systems are getting more and more advanced, uh, they're getting better and better. Um, and I mean, and it's, it's absolutely phenomenal uh, the way they operate reactors. Like we used to have to, you know, as an operator, I used to have to memorize all these set points based on that. I have one pump running in, in one of my loops and two in the other, and I have this switch in this position. I had to know I could, I did memorize exactly what my limit of the reactor output was. Mm. Now it's a computer model that it, it, it's, it's fluid, meaning that it changes as the, the different parameters throughout it change. So we're much better at this technology. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, you look at it, you go pre-computer, post-computer, and we run through these models over and over and over and over again, so we know we can make it happen. And even our, our old design reactors, the we understand how the, the fuel is loaded into the core, and we basically take every reactor apart every 18 months, a third of it gets sent out as waste, we bring a third in new fuel, reassemble it, and they run a model over it, and they know exactly when the reactor is going to be you know, brought online. So we have we have been able to use computers with old technology to prove it over and over again. And when you look at that, one of the huge benefits of these computer modeling is that uh, over the lifespan of nuclear, we've actually been able to upgrade the reactors, meaning that an 800 megawatt reactor is now probably more like 850 or 900 megawatts, right? Say, you know, a 10 to 12% increase in power output. Mm -hmm. So it's able to, using the exact same footprint, we haven't changed anything um, on the reactor other than to do the modeling and say, listen, we're actually safer than we thought we were. So we can, you know, bring up a little bit more power. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think last time I talked to you, it was, uh, there, there was a specific, I don't know if it was a statistic or something like that, but it was um, specifically when you looked at the computer systems and their ability to detect certain uh, faults within like submarines, like the amount of time I think it took. Um, can you speak on that? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting, and it's, it's called time response testing, and that means that if you have um, the indication occurs um, that would cause uh, an automatic protective feature of the reactor. So literally you time it from the time it takes from that, that let's say it, it's a temperature indication. So we'll, mm -hmm. I'm gonna arbitrarily pick something. It's a temperature indication that goes too high, which is gonna tell the reactor it's gonna take an action. Right, so we measure the time it takes for that temperature indication to be, you know, sensed to the circuitry, and then we basically measure each point through the circuitry all the way down to, let's say, you know, it, it causes the, the the control rods to drop. That whole time frame is measured, and we're talking from the the, the, the moment that the temperature indication occurs till those rods are all the way on the bottom, shutting down the reaction is literally. Uh, one to two seconds mm. and we measure these things they're measured in milliseconds and the longest part is actually causing that rod to drop right right so that's the longest part so when i'm saying one to two seconds basically 0 0.9 to 1.5 seconds is the rod physically dropping mm. and as it's dropping the reaction is shutting down the whole way okay. so really once once the 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 action of that rod beginning to drop uh, occurs that's when the, the reactor is really starting to shut down okay um, so I, I saw on your Twitter account, you, you speak about, uh, what you call the hashtag green nuclear deal. Um, can you kind of, I mean, this, this gets more into politics, but can we, can we talk, um, about your position just on, I guess the green new deal that was proposed and basically where we stand within, I, I, I know that you say Donald Trump has been pretty good on nuclear energy. So can you kind of speak on that? So, all right, so I, the Green Nuclear Deal, I literally saw the Green New Deal and I said, hey, I can do better than this with the Green Nuclear Deal. So um, basically, when I look at the, uh, the argument about climate change, the big concern of climate change is carbon emissions coming from electricity. We could talk about the other stuff as it goes and, uh, um, because there are other aspects to that. And industries are coming to me to talk to me about how to fix some of those other things as well. But really, the big thing I said is we've got to get our electricity production first. Mm -hmm. Because if we take and we get our electricity production, you know, we decarbonize that, assuming climate change is real, um, then we can, you know, fix that aspect. Mm -hmm. So there's the first, you know, and I take, I take a two-position stance with climate change. Climate change is either, A, a real problem that we have to take drastic action to correct, and nuclear energy is the best solution to do that, or it's a giant mass hysteria and we have to take drastic action 
to, to stop the people that are going to destroy our economy and our planet ecosystems, installing wind and solar, and nuclear is a solution for that as well. So it's two problems, one's left, one's right, and they converge at nuclear power. So that's that's kind of where where my big thing comes from. And you know, when I talk about the green nuclear deal, I talk about it in, in three phases. And I, I've kind of given a more adult uh, description to it. I call it the National Nuclear Power um, Strategy, so NNPS. And uh, phase one is, is that these are using existing licensed reactor designs. And it's specifically, I say the AP-1000, which is the reactors are being built in Vogel and we build, it's like 80 of these things mm-hmm. all over the nation in sites that have been previously licensed for reactors, um, had reactors under construction. There are seven previous generation that we need to build, but basically there's 80, there's enough sites where there's extra units we could place at existing sites, sites that were designated to build reactors. And we build the, you know, these things overall price tag on that's huge. It's about $800 billion. I say about, um, like I said, about a uh, hundred and about about a hundred billion of it, or sorry, no, about uh, fifty billion of it in direct subsidies. Get get building going, right? Mm-hmm. Because we don't have a lot of experience building because we had a thirty-year break. Um, what the thirty-year break was that? What, what thirty-year break in, in nuclear construction? Okay, okay. So yeah, so so we we stopped building in the eighties, and then we started building Vogel in two thousand thirteen. Okay. So there's a, a long, a long break right there. There's a couple of reactors that are some one-offs that were finished in the night in one in '91 and 2016, but okay. they were started in the '70s. So we have this long break in, in construction. So we need to get get that back up there, get the base up, and by picking one design, the AP1000, which was basically selected by a defunct company called Scana and uh, Southern Nuclear. Scana uh, was building two at BC Summer in South Carolina, and then um, uh, Vogel units three and four. So I said, that's our fleet design for large scale generation three reactors. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And we know we can do this. They're licensed. We have several licenses to be built right now. Um, but we could build any of these things. We basically double our, our, our nuclear output, which would reduce the carbon emissions in the United States by about one quarter. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and knowing we could do that, we could just start getting those built. And then in the meantime, we've got, and then I said, we've got two companies. And I mentioned, we've got, I, I mentioned it before, we've got uh, G Itachi has the BWX T300, which is a 300 megawatt reactor, but it's going to be built in the factory. And then you have New Scale, which is a 60 megawatt unit, or the, uh, the Vogel units are 11, or the, uh, the AP1000 are about 1100 megawatts each. So these are going to be able to be factory built. Now, uh, New Scale, they can, you can purchase their units in a single, so one little 60 megawatt could be installed, say, you know, small town in uh, Montana, right? Or, you know, Wyoming, right? So these are, you know, don't need a large, you're not looking for large amount of power, or you can buy them at up to 12, right? So now you got a 620 megawatt uh, unit with 12 reactors in it. Um, And I said, hey, let's give each of these companies $10 billion. So now, so we went from, you know, almost, you know, close to a trillion, almost like it's like 800, 900 billion, down to 20, give these companies 10 billion to get their, their factories built, get their first units online. And we'll do it as most of the stuff I, I, I proposed as loan. So not a direct subsidy, um, but just do it as a loan, get up, get these things building. And then when they start you know, installing them, uh, they'll see more and more. And it's gonna be about 10 years before they're able to actually start um, really having a large scale production. Okay. And at that meantime, right, that phase one is really taken off and you've got a bunch of reactors going online and i said build about 100 gigawatts worth mm-hmm. uh, which is about 10 percent or about 20 percent of our power so now i've decarbonized our our uh, uh power our, our, our electricity production by you know a total of 50 percent of the carbon emissions and now 60 percent of the nation is nuclear um and then phase three which is going to take about 20 years to get up and running is similar process with uh phase two, but instead of using a, these advanced gen three small modular reactors using generation four, I said, we need a national competition. We're going to pick three designs as a nation. Mm-hmm. They're going to compete. So there's like a dozen or so, or there's actually more than that. It's almost like 20 or 30 companies that have different generation four designs, have them compete the different phase competition, you know, uh, you know, competition. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the best one wins. And 
some of these these generation four reactors are as small as uh, as one and a half megawatts, which you know I mean that's that's really small. I mean it's a great for you know small towns in Alaska way up north or you know mining facilities or I have, I have a cousin who's big in the cannabis industry and they want to get into nuclear because they don't they're running their stuff off of their own natural gas plants, mm-hmm. but they'd rather have you know like say a five megawatt. Uh, nuclear reactor, they could just run all their grow grow lights off, right. and you know all their their uh, their cooling systems and auxiliary systems. Mm-hmm. So you know, seeing all that, you know, all that 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 change, and you know, it's, they're about ten year shots for yeah. each of these, um, and a lot of it's getting through that licensing, changing the regulations. Because when you look at Generation Four, we've got two big two big hurdles that are in the way. Uh, one is is that most of these Generation Four designs fall under what are called fast reactors, meaning that they use a, a high-energy neutron as opposed to a thermal or low-energy neutron, which is what we use right now. It allows us to use uh, the 95% of the fuel we don't consume in our current reactors. We can consume that. Um, so that's the first regulation. And then the other is actually spent fuel reprocessing so that I can take that spent nuclear material and I can actually reprocess it to put into these reactors. So those so are there's two things. Okay, yeah, so that, those are current restrictions. Like you're not allowed to do that right now because yeah, of regulation. That's right. or, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that yeah. That, that is the current the current struggle that we're having is there. And that's those are the two big regulations that I know of. Um, there's some other there's some other regulations out there or lack of regulations. Uh, so right now in the it's called the ASME code, mm-hmm. which is I don't know what ASME stands for. Don't don't quiz me on that. <laughs> but um, it's basically for inspection of uh, pressure vessels. So mm-hmm. whether it's a boiler at a at a coal plant, or um, you know the steam generator, or a reactor vessel at a, at a nuclear power plant. Right now, the the current U.S. codes only cover uh, light water or for nuclear light water reactor vessels and liquid metal reactors. We can't do a heavy water reactor, which is like what the can-do design in Canada has. We can't do molten salt. We can't do gas temperature cooled. Uh, so we, it's just, it's the way that the regulations have really um, kind of bound or lack of regulation kind of bound us just from one, one aspect. So there's a lot of things that have to get put into place to make this work. It's not as simple as, hey, I just want to build one of these things. Yeah. Although there is a company called Thorcon that is saying, hey, I just want to build some of these things. So. U.S. doesn't want to let me do it. Indonesia says, "Okay, yeah, we'll take our design to Indonesia, right? We'll right. pick up our toys and run." Right. So, so what what's the thought process behind those current regulations? The two that you were talking about. So, um, Jimmy Carter was president of the United States when those went into effect, and um, the concern was with nuclear weapons proliferation, and so and it comes from a gross conceptual error on the part of the, the Carter administration, and I think they were really concerned about. You know, it's this is in the middle of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. The U.S. and the Soviet Union are rapidly building nuclear weapons. We have enough. U.S. has enough, you know, weapons to basically kill every Russian like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, they have enough to kill us, you know, every American if they were cats. Like, I mean, you know, so everyone is really concerned about nuclear weapons. So they wanted to make a big statement. And, you know, when you're talking about fast reactors, really their fuel is plutonium. You're plutonium. People think weapons. But if you operate a, a, a reactor off of plutonium, that plutonium actually can't be turned into a bomb at all. Well, it could, but it'd be so complex, it'd be actually easier to create plutonium freshly outside of that reactor in a different type of reactor. It, 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 there's, there's special physics involved where if you have, it's easier to design a reactor to make bomb plutonium mm-hmm. than to just use plutonium that you pull out of a reactor okay right it's there, there's there's a, a specific isotopes it's just it's not weapons grade mm-hmm. and to turn non-weapons grade plutonium into weapons grade plutonium is expensive and extremely dangerous you're basically going to kill a bunch of workers doing it yeah. when i could just go build a special reactor that makes the plutonium the way i want it and then just chemically extract it as opposed to um you know, having to chemically extract it from the uranium and then centrifuge it, which means you have turned it into a gas. People breathe that in, and then it's going to kill them. That's the yeah. honestly, and you hear people talk about nuclear waste. The big concerns about it, it's actually when we're talking nuclear waste, we're talking about plutonium is the big thing that everyone's concerned about. Mm-hmm. Inhaling that stuff's really bad. It's in your lungs, stays in there. It's going to bombard your lungs with you know really 
powerful radiation yeah that is but it's it's only only affects you inside your body it's called an alpha radiation like you could literally stand you and i could walk or any any human could walk up to the most you know purest plutonium ever and it wouldn't hurt them mm-hmm. you could touch it because literally the, the the radiation gets stopped by the dead layer of skin on the outside of your body mm. so it won't even penetrate into the living skin just the dead skin right so that's how but put it inside yourself right that's not a, that's not a good thing yeah so why breathing it in is real bad that's why you would never you know, you, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to do this um i was going somewhere i completely forgot <laughs> Uh, we, I was just talking about um, the regulations. The regulations, right? yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I'm I, I'm super interested in in the competition aspect of it, like you were saying. Um, I know that this summer when we were talking, you you said something about like you were more concerned with um, equal treatment. So, like with with the uh, fossil fuel industry, obviously they have an easier path. Um, do you think? Do you believe that, I guess, if we got rid of subsidies on fossil fuels, um, I guess nuclear would come up on top? So um, the fossil fuel industry receives $21 billion a year annually from the United States government in direct subsidies, right? The renewables receive $7 billion. Um, the United, as far as I know, the United States government does not uh, direct subsidize any nuclear. They will, they, they state subsidize um they will subsidize states based on their carbon emissions but there's no direct subsidies of nuclear the only quote-unquote subsidy for nuclear is vogel has a federal loan right so vogel for their construction has a federal loan all subsidies from the federal government for nuclear are either a loan or nothing now there is some money in the latest budget for lab construction for stuff out at laboratories for the DOE to start this kind of this competition saying, mm-hmm. I think it's 260 million, not billion, but million to start doing, you know, getting some of these Gen 4 companies and get their design. So basically Rita Barnali, I think, or I, she's the head of the Office of Nuclear Energy. Um, she basically has a, a, you know, blank check for 260 million, right? So whomever you want to build advanced reactor designs. So, and that's cool, right? Because it allows us to say, "Hey, we, we're going to look at these different companies." And the government, do, the government is going to be overly involved in this. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be involved, but you know, I mean, that is that is great because it does produce um, a lot of uh, a lot of competition, mm-hmm. right? You know, we, we do want some competition, but the government's going to be involved because it is. Uh, you know, I don't want the industry going out and doing whatever because. I may not be able to install 10 giant thousand megawatt reactors in this small little pond mm-hmm. because it's going to boil all that water dry, right? That's not good for the environment. So we have to do, there's called environmental impact statements. Um, and, you know, every power plant has that. Um, as far as talking about the equal treatment between us and the fossil industry, it's not just the subsidies aspect. If you want to give equal treatment, absolutely. Every time a coal plant has to shut down because an operator makes an error, put it in the news. Every time they have, you know, a spill at one of their at one of their locations, put it in the news. You know, and make it a headline, mm-hmm. right? Because I mean, I literally, I, I go through if I Google nuclear and I look at the at the articles two or three times a week, I'm going to see an article about there was a problem at this plant in Russia and they shut the reactor down to make sure that they were okay and it was not an issue. They fixed it and brought the reactor back online. That's not news, that's called safe operation, right? But because of rea- a nuclear reactor shut down, the world is ending, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way that the new cells you fear. But we literally shut down fossil plants all the time for falls. They start mm-hmm. this, I mean, we literally had, uh, in, at nuclear sites, you typically have uh, a few little uh, gas gas-fired plants mm-hmm. for super peak loads in the, in the, in the summer and the, in the extreme heat of the summer and the extreme cold of the winter. Um, and uh, literally one of the ones on the site, like, they, they fired the thing up. We thought we had a fire in our switchyard because they didn't operate the thing right. <laughs> We're, I mean, I was literally, I'm dressed out in fire protection gear, ready to go out and fight the fire out of the, uh, the switchyard. Yeah. It turns out they just didn't know what they were doing and were basically billowing a bunch of smoke out they didn't need to. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, they were just doing excessive pollution because they didn't operate correctly. If that happened in a nuclear power station, 
they would shut all production work down. We just spent 24 hours talking about how our standards have slipped. We need to correct it. We need to get back on track. This is a big deal. They probably would have fired someone over it. Like just, they didn't kill anyone. They didn't hurt anyone. They just operated their equipment improperly. Mm -hmm. We operate our equipment properly. It's a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about by, by equal footing. Um, and if you actually regulated the, the fossil uh, companies the way that you regulate nuclear, just from an oversight perspective, right? Mm -hmm. We have a resident engineer plus an assistant from the NRC that is at our site. They can walk in anywhere, they have access anywhere, they can ask questions, make comments, the whole nine yards. If you did that at a fossil plant, they'd be shut down all the time because yeah. like, um, you have coal ash where it's not supposed to be, uh, you need to fix that. Um, you know, things like that. So that's just, it's, it, you know, we allow the fossil industry and the wind and solar, we're going to start, forget about them. We allow the, basically anything that's not nuclear, they basically have to self-report and they get the occasional spot check to make sure that they're self-reporting. Mm. Nuclear, on the other hand, is expected to self-report. And if we don't, we have someone there to go say, hey, you're, you're screwing this up. Yeah. So it's just like, to me, that's that's where I talk about when I say I would like equal footing, because if you gave us equal footing, there would be no other power industry would up would be up and running. Yeah. Like literally, the guys that go and they climb up to do the uh, the wind turbine maintenance, they wouldn't do it because of like, yeah, it's too hard trying to do this. I I, I have to have a bag. I can't hold, you know, I, I can't carry my equipment up here. Uh, my fall harness, I took it off, and now I got I got I got to go talk to someone about. They they would just they would just stop doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and by the way, wind is one of the deadlier forms of energy because literally people are falling off of those wind turbines and dying. Mm -hmm. We don't blame the wind industry for that, right? Even yeah. though the reason why that guy is up there is because the turbine needs maintenance, <laughs> so he's up there, right? right? But if a guy falls and dies at a nuclear power station, oh, no, it's a nuclear power station, all right? Yeah. So that's that's what I talk about with the equal footing okay. is that we'll, we, we're allowed to blame individuals that are not in the nuclear industry. Right. Um, on that the idea of self-regulation i so i remember you saying something along the lines of like nuclear companies have a lot of outsiders that they hire themselves to to kind of like check I, am i you're you're right yeah. so i mean it's, it's not even really outsiders um so it's it, there's an organization called the institute of nuclear power operations it's funded by the nuclear industry and this is actually kind of interesting because they so uh it, it's called impo is what everyone calls it yeah. um and what they do is, is that they're, so they have a headquarters staff and then they do audits and, you know, and give you an idea of these audits. Like right now, the, the plant that I work at in my day job, um, we're on an 18 month audit. We're not talking like, you know, a week, it's mm -hmm. 18 months. They're evaluating us. Right. So they're checking to see if we had a problem. How do we, you know, were our actions, you know, effective and in, in mitigating that in the future, you know, so there's, all sorts of aspects you know, between operations, between our engineering, between our maintenance, our records, everything gets audited. Now, INPO is funded by the industry and the teams are made up of uh, members of the industry, but they grade each reactor. So if I walk into a, let's say I walk into, um, uh, we'll say Turkey Point, uh, one, of the, one of the two pressurized water reactors in there, You'll actually see there's a scorecard that has every pressurized water reactor in the United States with like these, it's a big chart with this big scale across it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sorry, it has, it has, um, uh, sorry, each, 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 each reactor is actually separated based on the quartile they're in. So it's like days online, safety, right? All these different things they evaluate. Yeah. And then you're basically in competition with everyone. Mm. Every reactor is in competition with each other. And the INPO teams are made up of people from every company, right? So let's say that your impose down at an Exelon plant, right? Mm -hmm. They've got people from Next, you know, ne uh, Next Energy uh, or from Entergy. You've got people from Dominion. They've got people from Southern. They've got people from, you know, the, uh, uh, what is it? It's, you know, PG&E who own Diablo Canyon, right? They're down there and they're grading them. Do you think they want to give that reactor a good score? Right. No, because it's going to drive their plants down, right? So, so that's where that competition comes from. Is that you know they've developed developed competition. I got to find all these issues, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of a genius method in using the industry kind of against itself. Yeah. And really, it's it's been super effective 
and that the NRC has determined, I've got private people doing this. I don't see a need to do it for you. So they're scaling back some of their audits. Right. And their audits last about a week. So the, the government does a, a big audit, meaning they send in a team of 12 in-persons and a team of 50 or 100, right? right? And who, who does info cost? It costs the companies, right? Right. Who does the NRC cost? It costs you the taxpayers. Yeah. So you, the taxpayers, get a crappy audit that's done over short periods of time with a small number of people. The utility is funding an audit to be done by a large team that's going to analyze the you know the the, the you know the crap out of everything. Yeah. So yeah. that's where that that's where when I say self-regulation, and and I will say this, um, that model has actually been used with oil drilling. So the oil drilling companies basically after the Deepwater Horizon, they said, what's an industry that had their Deepwater? Oh wait, that's nuclear. It's Three Mile Island. Three Mile Island was the inception of Info. And so they walked up and they said, hey, uh, you guys um, put your accident back in 1979, figured this out. How can we figure it out? Right. And so we can get basically they said, if we don't want an NRC for oil, we want to get out of that. How can we do that? And they said, well, this is the cheapest way wow. is to do it and do it ourselves. That's really cool. Um, but yeah, so uh, I kind of wanted to ask you, I, I asked some people just um, that I'm friends with on social media, some questions. And someone was interested in thorium reactors. Do you do you know anything about them? Yeah. So so when you talk about when you talk about reactor fuels, there's three major types of fuel, right? You've got uranium two thirty five, which is the current reactors. That's that thermal fuel I was talking about. Yeah. You've got plutonium, which is actually created from uh, the, the uranium two thirty eight. That's that's uh, also exists. Uranium two thirty five is zero point seven percent of all uranium. Uranium two thirty eight is ninety nine point three percent. So we have, you know, uranium, plutonium, but they're basically off the same material stream, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then thorium is uh, thorium is just in the ground. I could walk out to the park and, you know, pick a scoop of it. There's probably thorium in the dirt, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very abundant. Um, and thorium now it does require a star, a seed, as it's called, uh, to start it because thorium is not nuclear fuel by itself. Um, much like that plutonium, it comes from something else. Well, mm-hmm. thorium is the base, so thorium you can actually convert it. In, in a nuclear reactor, you can convert it into uranium-233, and then that's the fuel. Um, but basically, all natural thorium is thorium-232. Uh, it's like not, like 99.9, you know, with like 100 nines after. There's a couple of other small trace amounts of other types of thorium, but it basically purely breeds into, into uranium-233. Um, very, uh, it's, it's as difficult to make a weapon out of uranium-233 as it is plutonium out of a commercial reactor. So very difficult from that aspect as well. So hard for proliferation. Um, so there are benefits to it. Uh, and, you know, when you actually consume all of your, your heavy um, uh, elements, right, your uranium, your plutoniums, and anything basically uranium and above on the periodic table, your, uh, your waste product stream at the end only lasts about 300 years. Because when we talk about that waste that lasts for, you know, 100,000 years or so, it's really, when you're talking about a commercial reactor, it's plutonium, because plutonium's half-life is about 24,000 years. If you didn't consume all of the uranium-233 in your reactor, uranium-233's half-life is about 150,000 years, which makes it somewhat, and we actually have a lot of uh, uranium-233 waste from weapons programs mm-hmm. early on at the, you know, in the history um, of, of nuclear. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not... It's kind of weird because with like uranium-238, uranium-235, their half-lives are in the billions of years, which basically means it's extremely stable, so you can have large quantities of it, and you, you could even ingest it, and it wouldn't hurt you because it's not producing enough radiation. But when you reduce that amount down to, say, 150,000 years, that's enough to where you're, you're a small quantity of uranium can generate a lot. It's just basically concentrating the, the release of radiation. Right. It's a weird concept you have to think about, but, um, um, and, and if you don't, if, if you didn't mention thorium in this, you would probably get 8 million hate, hate letters because if you've been doing this as long as I have, literally I'll tweet something out there and I get, I get literally as a response, thorium, right? It's, it's kind of the, it's, it's kind of the, the super ultra pro nuclear 
response, mm -hmm. whereas the anti-nuclear response is either Chernobyl or Fukushima. There's no context to it. Like, they don't actually, a lot of times, don't know what they're saying, yeah. which is fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give them the context to it. But, you know, they, you, know, you have to talk, every, every time you talk nuclear, you have to be willing to talk about thorium. You have to be willing to talk about um, uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. Yeah. And we've talked about, essentially, Chernobyl and Fukushima. So you hit all three. Right. That's right. Okay, sweet. Yeah, so um, regarding thorium then, with its abundancy um, and just the waste that it produces compared to uranium, is, uh, like, do people like it because I I've heard that they're able to reuse the waste in certain cases? So, so there, there's, there's multiple aspects here. that, that So a lot of the thorium advocates basically this this is what's really weird is that they think that because they're putting thorium in that could then dump nuclear waste the, the the spent fuel from current reactors mm -hmm. in there if you do that you're no longer a you, well you're a mixed blend fuel mm. but at that point you're really more of a plutonium reactor okay right so that's really what what because if you use a plutonium reactor you can use the waste to make to make it into fuel that fuels plutonium and you you can use a, a blend of fuels. There's nothing that says you can't do that. In fact, the very first kind of commercial reactor was basically managed by the United States Navy. It was the very first commercial de reactor designed for commercial operations, ran by a private company with oversight from the government up in Pennsylvania called Shipping Port. She operated off of uranium-235, off of plutonium, and off of thorium. Hmm. So you can use the same reactor, different types of fuel. It's, we've, we've done it way back in the 50s, right? right? It's not like this is not even new technology. Um, now, the waste that's left over from a plutonium or a thorium reactor are basically the same, right? So, you know, it's going to last about 300 years, right? Now, when everyone talks about the waste and they hear, they hear plutonium or uranium, they're thinking about the current reactors. If you're using fast or thorium reactors, you're talking about ones that will consume 100% of the fuel, meaning your waste your waste stream is 300 years, not 100,000 years. Mm. Okay. Um, and then another question I got, uh, I mean, it's a it's a kind of a funny one. It's um, He just says, what is the use of nuclear energy? And we kind of got to that earlier. Um, and he's like, I feel like when I hear about nuclear, I think of bombs. But can just just to kind of – can you can you speak to – how long um, the fuel lasts and how long it could uh, give us energy for just so in general. It, it depends. It depends on how you the quality of fuel, the great, you know, how you how you load it out. Um, so I'll give you an example. I'll give you multiple examples. All right. In a current commercial reactor, uh, the fuel lasts about four and a half years. We refuel them every 18 months. And like I said, we take a third of the fuel is removed because it's been in there for three um, cycles. Yeah. Right, so three cycles at 18 months is four and a half years, right? And some of, some of them are on two-year cycles, so it could be six years. Now, if you're looking at the United States Navy, for example, they use a different quality of fuel, and that submarine behind me, they call them throwaway cores because it operates for 33 years without refueling. Mm. And so now, and granted, these are, these are all the old-style reactors. Now, if you're using a reactor, say it's thorium or a fast reactor, um, it's generating its own fuel as it's operating. So remember, I loaded a bunch of thorium in there, and I got to have a seed to start it, and it starts building it. It generates neutrons. Those neutrons, um, in the process of making fission, some of those neutrons get absorbed by that thorium that becomes the uranium for your next fuel cycle, right? So it's basically right. self-generating its fuel. And you could easily design a reactor that could last for 20, 30, 40 years mm. without actually needing to refuel, or especially when you're talking like a molten salt reactor, you could refuel them online. So you wouldn't make your, your, your fuel basically, yeah, you might have to just inject a little fuel every now and again. Um, so, and you know, so that's just kind of the, the fascinating thing. It's all how you load your fuel. You can load, I mean, I, I, I say it like this. Uh, if I were to take a commercial reactor that and magically turn it into say, a gas-cooled, a liquid metal, a molten salt reactor that used the exact fuel loadout that's in there, but operated as a fast instead of a thermal reactor, that reactor, instead of lasting four and a half years, with the, the fuel in there lasting four and a half years, it would last somewhere around 400 years. Wow. Operating, this, putting the same power out. Mm. So we, that's to kind of explain the inefficiencies of how we operate our reactor. 
Yeah. And so that's the way that you would, I mean, is that the way that you would prefer to um, build a reactor or fuel it? I mean, I would I would prefer that we could use a reactor that could consume 100% of the fuel. One is, is that I don't need that long-term, you know, when, I, when we're talking long-term in nuclear, we're talking anything greater than, than 1,000 years. Mm -hmm. So um, so I, I would prefer not to have any long-term waste, right? Which means I don't need Yucca Mountain, even though that's in the news as of last night. Mm -hmm. When the president's tweeting about Yucca Mountain and wanting to bring it back on there, yeah. um, so the fact is, is that, you know, we've got Yucca Mountain, you know, we could use Yucca Mountain to store it until we need it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and right now we actually have an abundance of fuel if we were to use waste, right? I, I did a calculation, just our nuclear waste itself. We probably have around 5,000 years of energy in the U.S. It's already mined just in the waste. That doesn't include the depleted uranium used to make their reactors, Make the Navy's reactors, which is literally strapped to tanks as armor because it's thick and dense. It's mm -hmm. used as rounds, so I could use, you know, I could use that from the initial the the the, the purifying process of the fuel. So I have all that. Plus, I could use nuclear weapons. I could use, um, you know, and that that waste I'm talking about in the spent nuclear fuel is just commercial. That five thousand years just from commercial. There's waste left over from those. There's some that we could use there. There's our weapons. There's weapons waste. There's all sorts of stuff out there. We could even take smoke detectors mm. and extract all because smoke detectors, most smoke detectors are actually there's a there's nuclear material in there that could be used as fuel. Yeah. And you have that in your house. So so one of the things I always say is people say, Well, nuclear is dangerous. So like, well then take the smoke detectors out of your house and throw them on. Yeah. Or and, and you mentioned uh, I think it was you mentioned bananas um this summer yeah. too. Yeah. Can you can you speak on that too? Just kind of the dangerous aspect and um I think well, at, after that I think we might uh, be done, but can you kind of speak on those fears just in general? Yeah, so so everyone fears radiation, but they don't know, they're not educated on radiation. We have radiation around us all the time, right? And, um, you know, I, I, I call it the banana defense because bananas contain potassium, and most isotopes, like almost all isotopes of potassium are radioactive, right? So you're eating a banana, and you're actually eating radioactive material. Now, it's low-level radiation. It's not going to harm you. Right. I mean, it's not it's not large quantities or anything like that, but it's radioactive. Um, the other thing that you hear, the other thing that people talk about is because of Fukushima. Fukushima is the, the plant out there. They're going to release tons and tons of water. And the concern is this thing called tritium. Tritium, you know, it, it, this tritium was generated in the reactors. It's the same as the tritium that's generated in the upper upper atmosphere that then rains down. on us. Mm -hmm. Right. So literally every glass of water you have. Right. I'm going to consume some tritium in front of you. <laughs> Right, use tritium in there. I mean, it's going to be a little higher concentration, but it's not enough to harm you. Yeah. And that's part of the thing that the public doesn't understand is that they want a black and white. Radiation is bad. Well, no, radiation is not bad. It's a quantity of it. Um, you know, there's actually studies that say that a lack of radiation is probably just as bad as you as too much radiation. Mm. So it's finding that right balance, right? It's like, you know, it's like anything, you know, you, you, you don't want to eat just a diet of fat, right. but you do need some fat in it, right? You don't want to eat just a diet of protein or, you know, it's, there's that, that, that band you want in there. Yeah. And when you look, you know, the average uh, human gets somewhere between 150 and 500 milligrams of radiation per year. And I give the perspective, I did 20 years in the Navy, received 247 milligrams over 20 years from nuclear reactors. Mm. That's not a lot of radiation. Right? Compare that to a, a CT scan. That's 1,000 millirem in one shot. Yeah. And my daughter, my daughter was really ill when she was a child. She's received two of those. That's almost, that's almost 10 times the amount of radiation I received in 20 years from the Navy. Wow. And she received those as, in, she received that as an infant. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the perspective that, you know, giving people is like, listen, you know, we got to understand what we're talking about with all this yeah i mean i i don't know if i'm educated on this but i i, I i've also heard that people have concerns over just phones um is there is there anything there well they, so yeah so uh, radiation it comes in many forms this is just you know it's, it's a it's a form of uh, energy basically and so there is some concern and it's just you know you're literally putting a source of electromagnetic radiation which is you know would fall under visible light infrared um gamma radiation, all that stuff. It's just depending on different energy levels that you call it. And so you're putting that right up next to your ear. Is there a concern of that? There probably is. Mm -hmm. There will probably be some level of increased cancer in people's ears 
doesn't mean that it's going to be deadly. doesn't mean that, you know, um, it's going to kill everyone because of that. But people want to take these small things and blow them out of, out of proportion. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, the, the perspective that I was trained to when I first joined the Navy is if you took 10,000 people, 1,000 of them are going to die of cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just, you know, that's just the average number. Right. It's not right, wrong or indifferent. That just is. If you took those same 10,000 people and you exposed them to 1,000 millirem of radiation throughout their lifetime, you might have 1,001 die of cancer. So, yeah, it sucks for that one person, mm-hmm. but it's a contributing factor. It's not the only factor, mm-hmm. right? So, and we, and even then, we don't even know if that's the cause. Yeah. Um, you know, I've received, you know, since working at the commercial plant, I'm now close to, you know, 500 milligram total my lifetime. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't concern me, mm-hmm. right? Because I understand what I'm doing. I mean, I, I, and I know guys that, you know, worked in the industry early, early on that received, you know, 2,500 milligram in a day, right? Right. Now it's like, that's a bad week in an outage mm-hmm. for, for the whole station, yeah. right? So, you know, we, 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 you know, it's a difference in management. You know, we've, we've reduced the amount we find acceptable. And so. then, uh, I mean, because I think, I think that that could scare up scare a lot of people but i want to emphasize the idea i mean just because we're getting energy from these nuclear reactors doesn't mean that we are getting we're exposed to the radiation the people working with them um around the reactors will be but they're willing to do it um yeah and then i mean we get radiation from the sun we get you know so i, I do want to kind of yeah and, and that's a, that's a, that's a great perspective and, and we'll go back to the, an accident right so three mile island big action in the U.S., there was some exposure to the public. The people that lived immediately around the reactor site received about 3 millirem of radiation, or 3.2 millirem of radiation. If you go to the dentist, you get x-rays on your mouth, right? Typical thing, right? Take check your teeth. Yeah. Each one of those x-rays is 3 millirem. Yeah. Each one, right? You go to the, He may do 4 or 5. I've, I've, had, I've had a couple of root canals. It was like 15 x-rays to make sure you got everything everything cleaned out, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's a bad day of radiation for me at a, at a power station, right? 45, that's a lot. That's a lot in one day, 45, at a nuclear reactor as an operator, mm-hmm. right? But 15 x-rays at the dentist while I was doing a root canal, nah, that's normal. And that guy, sit, literally the dentist was sitting in the room for most of them because he had to make sure he held it just right because right. he needed to look at one specific place. So, I mean... You know, that's the perspective a lot of people don't have is that when they just hear radiation, radiation is bad. It's like, well, you're exposed to radiation all the time. Yeah. And just don't think about it. You know, and one of the, what's the big fad in, in countertops for uh, for homes? It's granite. Mm-hmm. Granite's filled with radioactive materials. Right. You get more, yeah, I probably get more radiation from my granite countertops than I do at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, so kind of just to finish up, can you, uh, you, you kind of did a little bit earlier when we talked about the political aspect of it. Can you, but can you speak on like where you're at right now with uh, the green nuclear, nuclear deal, if anyone's hearing it, and then uh, just tell people where they can find you. And um, you can... All right, so you can find me on my website. That's uh, gen4nuclear.com, G-E-N-I-V, nuclear.com. You can also find me um, on uh, Twitter. I'm at subschneider, S-U-B is in submarine. That's why I have the submarine behind me. And then Schneider, S C H N E I D E R. Um, you can actually also find me on uh, 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 CSAspeakers.com. I'm, I'm beginning my professional speaking career. So if any of your people want to uh, book a speech with me, I'd greatly appreciate that. Um, and as far as traction I'm receiving from the Green Nuclear Deal, let's just say that I have both sides politically are reaching out to me. I'm talking with politicians on both sides of the aisle because I'll tell you. The Republicans, this is what I'm seeing, Republicans are about to take climate change as an issue from the Democrats, and the Democrats know this, and they are terrified, mm-hmm. because the Democrats know that this this nuclear, the Democrats that are pro-nuclear know it's going to work, and they know that the Republicans are going to be a monolith with it, and they have, they are literally scrambling in fear to get the, the wind and solar and, you know, the boutique environmentalists going, no, you need to get behind nuclear, or we're going to lose this, and we're going to lose all control of the government because the party that can explain nuclear and explain how it's going to fix climate change is going to slaughter in 2020 yeah right so well yeah thank you so much for coming on uh it was great talking to you
Yeah, it was great talking to you, and uh, we'll do this again sometime. Hey, everyone, if you made it to the end of this podcast, uh, let me know what you think. Um, You can reach out to me if you have any more questions regarding nuclear energy. I might be able to answer them, or I can just get a hold of Mark and uh, ask for you. Um, Or you can get in touch with him as well. But yeah, um, something that I also forgot to mention is to create another show within the Liam McCollum show um, where I review movies with my friends, um, may even just have political discussions with my friends, um, just rant. I don't know. I, I really still don't know where this is going other than what I already mentioned. I do want to continue interviews. I think that they're really fun. I hope you guys do too. But yeah, let me know what you think um, and come back soon. Thank you.